start off where did where did your your spirit of adventure all begin what was your what's your what's your earliest memory of adventure uh, well i was brought up by the lady who looked after scott of the antarctic son peter who became sir peter scott and uh she uh told me stories about the explorers who I came to know as the Antarctic boys. Um, and that was uh, stories of Scott and Shackleton and Mawson and de Gerlach and, and others. And their sort of uh, extraordinary exploits uh, in Antarctica. And, I, and uh, this lady who was my nanny uh, used to tell me the stories from the age of two onwards. Um, to be honest, I can't actually remember her directly telling the stories, but then when I was um, between 8 and 14 years old, so many relatives and friends would say, do you remember how Enid Wrigley used to tell you about X or Y? And I'd say, no, I can't remember that. And they, then they then tell me the story. So I got it on sort of positive feedback loop. Second time around, I can remember the stories. So that's probably where it started. Okay, so it was sort of almost a, a self, it was always in the back of your mind then about the polls. When, when did it first come into your mind then that you, you know you might make your own own expedition to to the north pole um well i think it, it's fair to say that it had never occurred to me um until a particular moment um when i was 27 years old that i might be uh able to become an adventurer or an explorer um but the moment came quite out of the blue pretty much like a bolt out of the blue um, when I went to the Royal Geographical Society's uh, Lowther Room, which was, um, in 1988 was a dark, dusty, very rarely visited room uh, where all the books were locked up behind brass grills. And uh, I was there on a lunch break and uh, I decided almost just to be annoying to the librarian um, well, not so much to be annoying, almost to be uh, 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 to, to give the librarian something a bit different to do. I asked if we could go up to the Lowther room and he brought up his keys and he said, well, what book do you want? Once you drive to the library room and, uh, and uh, I thought, I don't know. Uh, I just thought it was interesting to find a book up here. Let's find a book of interest. He said, well, which grill do you want me to open? I, I didn't know. So I sort of spun around and just randomly pointed at one grill and then I randomly put, plucked a book out and um, it was a book by a German ornithologist and natural historian. Um, well, actually, it was a, a book about him. Um, he was called Bernard Adolf Hanch. He'd made the, a quite extraordinary journey um, of exploration on Baffin Island about 100 years earlier. And the book had never been read. Uh, and I knew that because the pages were continuous at the tops. So the librarian had to go back downstairs and get a razor blade and then slice the, the tops of the pages through. And I was reading this book and I thought, OMG, this man is the journey he has made, the level of commitment, the privations, the, 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 his knowledge and, and, and interest and commitment to the fauna and flora and, and his sort of baseline surveying of those. Um, was so extreme, uh, I was moved by it. And I just thought this man deserves uh, a, degree, you know, a higher level of recognition for his work. Um, so I literally, having read most of the book, 
um, dur- during a somewhat extended lunch break, I uh, I walked back across Hyde Park to my office, thinking, "Well, I'm, this is it. I'm, this is what I need to do. I need to reenact his journey, hundred years on, and take a team out and make some value of his baseline measurements, and let's see how it's changed, if it has, in terms of fauna and flora, hundred years on." And uh, and I resigned that day from a very interesting job. Uh, I worked with Mark McCormack Sports Organisation. It was a pretty, pretty fantastic job. And uh, as I was walking back, I thought, gosh, as a boy, all the books that I had collected to the age of 27 were almost exclusively around adventure, whether it was um, Willard Price's books, um, Lion Adventure and Tiger Adventure and various things like that that a lot of boys of my generation would have read, uh, or it was the Wilbur Smiths. Um, and uh, I thought, actually, subconsciously, that's what I've always been passionate and interested about. Um, and so that's how it started. Yeah. So did you go off and then repeat the expedition then? Well, the funny thing is I didn't, but um, what I did do was I put an advertisement in uh, a magazine that's now defunct um, uh, called, uh, and... Um, uh, uh, for a VA, for, for an HF radio operator with Arctic experience. And the man who came forward uh, replying to that was very experienced uh, Arctic expedition leader. And he said, look, I, I think it'd be much better if you came and went, came, came with me, or I went with him on his next journey uh, planned, uh, which was to photograph polar bears uh, in the wild, if you will. So we were just pulling sledges and photographing and we weren't in a sort of BBC types stand and hide on, on scaffolding or anything. And uh, and that was sponsored by SAS, the uh, airlines, Scandinavian Airlines. And, uh, and he said, I will let m- me see how you get on and you can pick up some basic survival and travel uh, skills uh, under his mentorship. And then maybe he joined my expedition proposed to Bracken Island. But in fact, we then went on and did another expedition after that together. And I suppose the book had done its job to catalyze my uh, interest in the Arctic. Uh, so I've, n- I've never, I've never gone back to that journey. Amazing. Um, on my office, I walk up every day past the Lalfi room, and I just think maybe I should uh, go go trawling through an old book in there, maybe see where what adventures it starts me off on. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, I mean, what was the process from then? It's obviously it was quite a long journey until you actually made or completed the the polar expedition. What um, what sort of what were the steps and the, the was it a fifteen year planning process? No, I, I, I was uh, twenty seven when I went to the um, made my first journey uh, across sea ice between the islands um, in the Svalbard archipelago. That was a 70-day journey, um, uh, he and uh, my partner and I, and then uh, it was on the flight back that from that uh, journey that uh, it occurred to me that, because we'd actually spoken to Rand Fines and Mike Stride via our HF radio from uh, Barents Island, uh, because I had an eye injury, the surface of my eye had frozen to my contact lens and uh, it caused me some meaningful problems and an infection. And the only 
person we could contact, because uh, this was before the days of uh, telephones, was actually Mike Stride, and, who was a doctor, of course, and Ran, who were making their, one of their attempts on the North Pole at the time, uh, which was quite bizarre. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Mike was giving me advice on, on what to do. And it was flying back from that project that I thought, you know what, um, I've spent the last 70 days on sea ice um, going, if you like, longitudinally. Why don't I go latitudinally and go from the edge of the Arctic Ocean up to the pole? Basically, look to do what uh, Van Fiennes had been uh, looking to do, but, but I, I wanted to do it alone. And uh, I thought I had enough experience now to do it. Uh, 70 days crossways uh, can't be that much harder than 70 days. Uh, or, 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 you know, can't, can't be that much harder to go some days upwards. So uh, that was my first mistake, as it turned out. It was a great deal harder. But um, that's where the idea of making a solo, unsupported expedition to the North Pole came from. Um, so, what, what made it so much harder? Uh, well, I think it's not entirely surprising that when you're operating between channels of islands um there's uh the flow of ice uh is uh, how is the reference to that um okay uh i think there's one area of difference is psychologically and what I discovered was that if you're going alone and things start going not so well, within minutes you can go from, uh, I can do this and this is good um, and there's a good plan, to this is ridiculous, this is not possible, uh, it is, uh, I shouldn't be here, uh, it's highly dangerous and it's... Uh, and you just crumble, you can crumble. And the psychological spiral downwards is um, extremely rapid because there's no one there to say, come on, mate, um, you're just having a bad a bad sledging session or, or, or you're just having a bad day or, it, you know, there's no one to sort of slap you out of it or, or say, look, I can help or tell you a joke or I'll take some of your gear today out of the sledge or whatever. Um, and so I would say that it is vastly more psychologically demanding being on your own for an array of reasons of which that's, that's one. And so the management of your psychological approach is um, key. Um, so when it's a, I would say it is a technical environment to operate in, but the technical aspects are not whether you can use an ice screw or whatever. It's more about technical management of what, what, what's going on in your head. So that's one thing that's different. I mean, that, and another would be that uh, the, the sheer um, physical scale of the challenge to cover sort of 800 kilometers or so um, of m- uh, which can, which in my case involved four and a half thousand ridges that averaged to about two meters in height, um, and that those ridges are predominantly in the first third of the journey, 
when your sledge is at its heaviest. My sledge was a great deal heavier for that journey. Um, uh, you know, of about had a sledge weight of about 260 pounds, and I had a 30 pound rucksack. Um, of course, you're, you're doing all these ridges when your sledge is at its heaviest, and when the temperatures are at their coldest, which means the frictional drag is significantly greater. So everything's consp- conspiring against you as you set off from the edge of the ocean, you know, from the coast out to sea. And that hadn't, wasn't the case in, on my previous expedition in Svalbard. So, for the, uh, yeah, um, many, many issues. Yeah. And then how, what, what are the techniques then that really help overcome the, the psychological thing? Is it, is it simply just positive thinking or there, is there more to it? Um, I would say uh, there was definitely more to it. Uh, it took me a very long time. And I said, you asked earlier, what are the strategies that I uh, used to be able to achieve this? Well, I thought when I first set off in 1994 that I would simply do it, and that would be that. Um, but uh, I had, I didn't succeed. I covered, a, on average, a mile a day for 30 days. I only got out about 30 miles. Um, the truth was that, in fact, I did the 30 miles in a I don't remember how many days, but, you know, 10 days or so, 12, 15 days. But then um, hit a very large area of open water that kept reopening. So while it froze, it was then open wider. So there'd still be open water in the middle. And so I I was camped on the shore of this lead running from east to west across my path, um, 30 miles out. And I just didn't know how to cross it. I mean, it seemed to be that it obviously wasn't crossable. So I was stuck there, and in the end, I realized that I simply didn't know what to do and uh, and had to retreat, uh, having, I might add, tried to cross it um, because I thought that's what I had to do and uh, fell in and, and swimming around in the Arctic on my own. It's, it's um, properly terrifying. Um and uh, having made that attempt after a few days of waiting and then waited a few more days, I just thought this isn't... And I, and, and I simply now would not have had enough food to complete the journey, even if I'd found a way across the ice, uh, across this, uh, this area of open water. So um, one of the strategies that I very quickly adopted was to set up a guide service, and I guided people for 10 years. Um, on the sea ice, going up most years, often for up to three months, guiding multiple trips, um, you know, back to back, and built up an enormous body of experience traveling on sea ice. And um, I have to say that for the first, you know, for 80%, 90% of that, uh, I thought that I was learning how to, what I needed to do was learn how to basically operate in, in sort of practical operational terms on the sea ice um, and how to navigate uh, effectively. But in fact, it was quite near the end of my guiding that I realized what the real challenge was, and that is to is the psychology. So it's the psychology of being on your own and the psychology of... of uh, being in an extremely remote uh, location on your own 
And then there's a psychology of trying to perform at what you know must be a higher level than anyone you've ever read about um, to achieve what it is that's ever been achieved by by others before you. Um, and then there's a psychology of knowing that there are absolute or, or, or objective risks, hazards that are are present that have to be managed and if you don't manage them effectively there will come a time when you don't come back um, and then there's the um, a sort of different area of uh, so, so setting up a guide service enabled me to build up the, the sort of the famous 10,000 hours of experience which most people don't do they go up they have a go they last 30 days, 40 days, whatever, come back. If they have a second attempt, they may last, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 days, but still don't get there because no one had ever got there alone without resupply. And then that's it. So their total experience on the sea ice was sort of 30 to 60 days. Well, it's just not enough. I mean, you might get away with it, but you don't deserve to get away with it because there's a hell of a lot of uh, experience uh, that one can only get um, by being there and and doing things and trying things that cannot be learned in books. It's just not possible. Um, so you raised the point, um, because I should add, you're having to make a, an enormous number of decisions or judgment calls. Often they're quite fine, marginal judgments on what to do next um, to optimize, maximize the likelihood of succeeding. When it comes to rain from water, you know, I, should you go east or should you go west? Is it entirely random? Does it make any difference? Or should I go east this time, west the next time, east next time? You know, zigzag, zigzag, and actually that equals a straight line. Do I need to really know or care about what the currents are doing? It does, is it a big enough, does it make a big enough difference? If I know I'm being, the ice I'm traveling on is going in a southwesterly direction, you know, should I be still heading due north or should I be heading into that and making an allowance for the drift of the, of the ice? Um, and it's just a myriad of stuff once you get into it. Um, and if you don't know that you're making the right judgments, it's extremely undermining of your confidence. And you asked earlier on how important is you know, to what extent is it all about positive mental attitude? To which I would say that the positive mental attitude is all very well, but I suspect that too many people think that that can, if that's the main pillar, everything else will sort itself out. And my experience is that while it is essential to have as in, in uh, an essentially um, positive mental approach to things. If you rely on it too heavily and there is not the experience built up over time, uh, you're, you're sort of going blind and two things can happen. You get a sort of chronic erosion of your confidence because if it's just in your head. It, it's, it's, it's an illusion or it's a delusion. You know, it's not grounded in anything. Uh, so you can get a chronic erosion of it as you're constantly making decisions and hoping that's right. And you start thinking it's sort of confident that's the right decision. And then you think it's, uh, a few days later, you're thinking it's the right decision. And then you're wondering if it's the right decision. And then you're seriously not sure at all that that was the right decision. 
Um, and secondly, you, could, you can have some sort of shock, a shock, big impact thing that really shakes you. So I don't know. Um, could be anything. Your gun jams when you're trying to scare off a bear um, and it jams three times and then the bear happens to decide to wander off and you think, well, what would happen next time if that happens again and, you know, and the bear doesn't go, that's the end of me. So you have those sort of shock things. And between those two things, the chronic and the shock, uh, in high impact, this, this positive attitude can just fold like a pack of cards because it's not based on anything. So very important to have, but if you rely on it unduly, um, you don't probably deserve to get to the far end. Yeah, very true. Well, thank you for that. Um, is, there a, is, is there a sense of joy you get from um, from challenging yourself? I mean, reading about your, your school days, you know, you're the, the first person to complete the um, the long, what was it called, the long... Long, long ducker. Yeah, the long ducker in, in 50 years. Is it something you've always loved doing? Well, I can tell you that as far as the long death is concerned, it's now transpires that it was the first time it was ever done. Oh, wow. There is no, they've now done a big uh, research, the school, to um, sweep through history and all all known records and can find no record of anyone ever having done it before. So it turns out that that was my run was probably the first time this has ever been done. Although when I was there, and the book's just been written about it, actually, but um, uh, when I was there, as you know, the headmaster assumed that it was or reported that it was first time in 50 years, and the first time in 400 years. Um, but uh, I, I think the the satisfaction and the fulfilment is more the, 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 what it feels like when things. When you, you know, I think anybody when you set yourself a, a supreme challenge. Um, When the plan is working, uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting. You think I, I think you know you're the first person to have actually cracked. You know, look today you've cracked this challenge, and that's you know that. But I have to say that excitement is heavily tempered until you are actually standing on the pole, because anything could happen at any point. Um, and for and for everybody that's ever tried before, including myself twice, you know that's exactly what happened. You didn't make it. However confident you were, presumably you set off with confidence in your plan. It's, um, but as you get close to the pole, uh, there's a sense that perhaps this is the plan that was going to work. Um, I personally find exploration fulfilling uh, because it invites a person to put in all that they've got, all that they can be, um, uh, and to develop all the different aspects of one's personality and one's skills um, to to put together the best possible uh, uh, effort, if you like. So, I think that in many jobs and many careers, one's invited to be increasingly specific about what you're asked or invited to, to bring to the bit to the business or to the office every day. And I think that can be very limiting and very frustrating for people. But as an explorer, 
you have to be able to understand how charities work. You might even have to set up a charity yourself. Um, you're engaging with a vast range of third parties from charities, um, television, radio, newspapers, online, digital, social media. Um, you are having to understand about psycho your, your own psychology um, in the field, uh, all the technical skills that you may need to build up in, your, in the environment you're interested in. Um, understand how your body works and how to repair, how to maintain it uh, nutritionally and in other ways and how to um, repair it, mend it in the field. Um, the, uh, you've got the whole training aspects of how you get fit enough and strong enough to deliver whatever it is you want to do. Um, there's the, you may, might be having to make a film, take photographs to convey in different ways that the nature of the project you're doing. Uh, so there's a creative element to it, um, and it just goes on and on and on. And you, you know, if you're on your own, uh, you essentially are at the hub of all these activities. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, you need to be a salesman as well to raise the money, particularly for polar projects, which are very cash intense, um, because mainly because of air charters that have to be involved. Um, so you might be raising, you know, initially I was pleased to, to have raised, you know, a few thousand pounds, but but now at the point, you know, that just, the numbers just seem to grow. Now I'm raising millions of pounds, doing multi-million pound deals um, to make the projects um, work at the scale that I've recently been doing them with, for example, the Catlin Arctic Survey. So um, it really is a career choice that uh, enables you to be all that you can be. I think that's quite unusual, and I certainly find it to be the probably the single most rewarding aspect of it. Amazing. Uh, do you think maybe if you hadn't been an explorer, you'd still be doing sports management? Well, um, I tell you, one of the things that, <laughs> as an explorer, I mean, of course, we all take different things and enjoy different aspects of, of exploring more than others. Uh, but certainly one of the things that I have found is that my time at Mark McCormack's sports organization, which was IMG, uh, was invaluable in that it learned, it taught me uh, how to identify intellectual rights, um, I, I, uh, and how to value those rights and how to sell those rights and how to deliver those rights. Um, in, when I was with McCormack, it was to do with um, equestrian individuals and equestrian events. Um, so I was an agent selling sponsorship, but also lots of other things, not just sponsorship, um, you know, book rights and endorsements and all sorts of things. There's a whole array of ways of generating income from these intellectual rights as they're known technically. And that's what I have had to do to, to do my work as an explorer. So one of the areas that is a sort of, if you like a transferable skill into the real world is to, um, you know, I, I, I could um, work as, as a sponsorship agent, if you like, or, 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 or develop some rights myself, for example, into a, to a race or what have you, and I would know how to manage those rights in terms of you know creating them and packaging them and selling them and delivering them, 
So that's something I'm quite interested in. But that's ultimately what one has to do. It's what, what all explorers do to a greater or lesser extent. They have to identify what their brand is, what, what, what the brand of the event or themselves is or both, and how to um, monetize that. Um, because if you can't, um, certainly in the more cash-intense regions or cash-intense projects, um, whether it's trying to fly around the world you know, with, on solar power alone or um, do deep-sea you know, submarine research, you know, these, these environments are very expensive to operate in. And if you can't raise the money, it's just a dream. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I, I sort of suggested to my own explorers you know, to, to write fundraising letters to, to maybe some smaller companies to help them on their own fundraising. Obviously, it's not quite the, uh, quite the same level, but it, it's definitely uh, uh, an area that needs to be, uh, needs to be mastered and part of that whole, that whole spectrum. Yeah, and I think, I would say, I mean, sorry, I've been talking at a reasonably sort of high level, which maybe is not appropriate, but uh, you know, at the start, we all had to start somewhere. Uh, my first uh, project, which was in Svalbard, had a budget of about £10,000 um, uh, back in the 1980s, uh, and um, of which I had to raise about half. You know, and that's pretty hard. Um, it's because, A, the perceived, you know, the value that you may perceive you have that you can offer to sponsors. Um, no one's heard of you. You've never done anything out there, so it's not very credible. You can't ask for a million pounds. You know, why would they give it to you? So, you know, you start with a relatively low value that you can offer. Um, uh, but it's that's fine because we all had to start there. Um, but I think right, some top tips that for people are looking to raise money um, for um, you know, British exploring activities, I would say, is to go to relatively local companies to your area um, because there is a relatively high value. You're maximizing your value because local boy or local girl goes on X, you know, that actually has value to a local company. Local person... Um, going to Mars or, 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 or someone like that, it's like, that was, doesn't work. That's a global brand. It's not going to work to have a, 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 you know, an unknown person from um, Argyle you know, going to whatever. So get, go local. Um, believe, always remember that um, so many people have never had the have never created the opportunity that you are looking to create uh, for yourself, and uh, often people you may be surprised. Often people will live through your expedition, will want to be a part of it because the time has passed for them to do it. But they can be involved with yours and see what it would have been like, if you like, and feel good about making it possible for you to have an interesting experience. And what comes out of that, I would suggest, is that don't think that you're going around asking for money. Go to them on the basis that what you can offer them that might be of interest or use to them. Um, because once you realize that you're not actually trying begging for money, what you're actually doing is satisfying something that you're giving them something that they might want, then you're doing them a favor. 
And once you go into a meeting thinking, you know, with a degree of balance rather than, uh, you know, you know, I feel pretty bad even being here asking you for money. What I actually think is I'm really excited to be here because I'm doing this really interesting thing that, well, I'm doing something that I think your customers or your staff might find really interesting. Um, you know, you're there to help them. You're doing something really, you know, thank goodness you're there in the meeting able to offer them this, this, this opportunity. And that is, um, I think, quite a useful um, con- perspective to have when you go in to these sorts of meetings. That's, that's exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, I mean, obviously, I want to be quite conscious of your time, so maybe just a few just quick questions to, to finish, finish off. Um, who are your, your modern-day heroes? I mean, obviously, you, you, you were brought up on the, the stories of the Antarctic, Antarctic boys or the Arctic boys. Who do you admire yeah. now who's doing really amazing work, maybe? Um, well, I, people who are doing things now, um, I suppose... Um, yeah, I, I am interested I wouldn't say I, I don't really have heroes um, uh, I'm afraid to report um, because I tend to find that when you get to know the people in more, I, you know eventually it transpires that they're fallible you know, that they've got their flaws mm-hmm. Um because surprise, surprise, we all do. Uh, and often, the, the more extremely successful people are, often the greater the almost counterbalancing flaws seem to me to be. It's very frustrating. But, um, uh, I mean, when I was a young man, the people that basically fired my imagination for the possible, for what might be possible, would have been um, Chablis, John Ridgeway, Robin Han- Hanbury Tennyson, Robin Knox Johnson, Chris Bonington, Rand Fines, um, people like that, the sort of generation above me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who were doing really interesting things. Um, the generation before that was Sir Francis, Sir Francis Chichester, who I was a huge fan of, uh, both in his uh, aircraft work and also his, his, his yachting work. Um, and before then, uh, the ultimate explorer to me uh, of all time would be uh, Fritjof Nansen and his journey in the Fram being the ultimate expression of what it is to be an explorer. Okay. Journey of the Fram. Um, sorry? What, what was that called, sorry? Who was his name? The fr- so Fritjof, F-R-I-D-T-J-O-F. Uh, Nansen is his surname, N-A-N-S-E-N. And he made a journey in a boat that he built, had specially built called the Fram, F for Freddy, R-A-M for mother. Uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the dates. Um, so I've embarrassed myself, but it's in the 18, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, forgive me for not remembering. Uh, and he set, he deliberately set his ship into the ice 
to then drift across the North Pole. But in fact, what happened is they got to about 86 degrees north. He and then one other um, uh, person on the ship set off for the North Pole on skis, pulling, pulling sledges, um, knowing that they, there was no prospect of ever finding the ship because it was it was moving all the time. They didn't have GPS or anything like that. Anyway, they needed they, they got a bit they they, they got some way towards the pole. Realised they weren't, turned back, and they made for the coast. They made it all the way back to the Russian coast, and then lived for a year in a in a stone hut that they made, um, with you know, on, uh, living on uh, seal, I think. And then they were discovered randomly by a Victorian explorer, British English Englishman, on on a hunting expedition who'd chartered a yacht and gone to this extremely remote. Um, bunch of islands. So, you know, that was, and then he went on to be uh, a diplomat and was a also a scientist of note and set up Norway. He was one of the um, founding fathers of, of the country of Norway. So, uh, he's the mate. He's he's the he's the the ultimate. Um, but that is going back in time, obviously. Um, and I think um, I'm desperately trying to remember his name, the man who's now doing Bloodhound, um, but who did the Thras SSE, uh, the two of them, uh, Green, is it Dave Green, the driver, uh, Andy Green, yeah, who's a pilot, but also you know, a fighter pilot, but also drove Thras SSE, the, the fastest um, vehicle on land. To break the sand barrier, if you remember, um, and they've now got a new project um, called um, Bloodhand, and I can't remember my memory's terrible, but there's a man who's behind that who does the fundraising. You know, I love that sort of thing. The chaps who are going around, Bertrand Picard, he's a hell of a chap. He's now doing this round the world solar plane. You know, these people who. Who are explore? You know, there's I would call those feats of exploration. Um, they're technology led, but by golly, that that they they require everything that an explorer has to bring uh, in terms of raising the money and the profile of of their projects and pushing limits, technological limits, um, and so on. Uh, so those would be some more modern things that I'm I'm interested in. Um, Amazing. Um, that really helps. You know, that's that's excellent. I mean, you know, that that that's who you admire. Um, and then maybe just one or two tips. Obviously, there's been a, a whole world of knowledge that you've shared so far. But maybe if you could just give one, a few tips for our explorers who are departing next week on their first first expeditions. Okay, it's it's not about whether you get to the far end. If there is a journey, it, it's less. Okay, well, I would suggest, from my experience, that it's about the process. It's all about the journey, and what I mean by that is, it's about. Um, it's not. A, it's about what you can uh, provide to the team as a team member, hour in, hour out, day in, day out. Don't worry about the far end. Worry about what you're contributing with your smile, with your words, 
with your thoughts to make it work, not just to scrape by, but to make it the most enriching experience and 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 developing experience, you know, in terms of your own your own development to the people around you as possible. Really pour your, you know, really amplify all that you can be that is positive and experiment and um, remember it, it's about it's not about the arrival it's about how you get there which isn't very obvious at the time and so that's one thing um, they probably raise their money now so what would be another thing um, uh, I would say that if you take if they take it can be very helpful um, to have a way of removing yourself from the immediate environment. But uh, say so whether it's an iPhone, you know, whether whether it's uh, music or books, are the two things that I have used in the past. So I would suggest they do take something, but be very use it very scare, scarcely. You don't want to have your in my view, you know, your earphones in all day as you're walking along, listening to lovely music. That's not what it's about. But to put them in for 20 minutes or 10 minutes before you go to sleep or um, something like that, or, 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 or at, at a break, perhaps, and just, um, just, you know, whatever. Use it sparingly is the word, but um, but do look after yourself. That's, that's an important part of keeping yourself healthy. You know, just having a little escape, um, and the book's probably the best thing. Um, uh, I would recommend that. But don't take War and Peace. Take something that you think is just going to take you away. I used to take James Herriot, you know, funny books, basically. Um, so that's another little thought. Um, and I suppose perhaps be aware that the these can be very formative experiences. You are really developing who you are in, 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 in these quite intense projects that you're doing, these challenges and, and this work that they're doing, quite intense environments. And the, the good news is that these are opportunities to really expand out and push back your comfort zone. Um, but the key is you do actually have to go into your uncomfortable zones to do that. So don't be a shrinking violet. Don't be, don't be all quiet and mousy and, oh, I'm not sure I could do this. These are the times to really be brave um, and, it's, and try things out. Um, and you may be amazed how... Um, something you wouldn't dreamt of doing at the start of a project, by the end it's become entirely normal um, and actually you have expanded your um, your known capabilities massively and the braver you are it's pretty straightforward um, and the more you practice doing that the um, bigger the uh, uh, growth and the development and the uh, gains you will have. It's a pretty direct um, relationship. So, and courage, if that's a better word, is like a muscle. The more you use it, 
the stronger it becomes. So keep being courageous, which might be you know, something really quite simple, like you don't really want to offer to do the cooking tonight. Just offer to do the cooking, you know, and even rather be sitting around or see your friend or whatever, but actually no one else particularly wants to do it. Just do it. Just say, I'll do, just put your hand up. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And it's that sort of energy and commitment that, of course, has the extra effect of getting everyone else more upbeat. So I say the last thing is um, be aware that your mood is only one thing more infectious than enthusiasm. And that is, that is a lack of it. So be enthusiastic. Offer to do things. Volunteer to do things. But, you know, whatever it is. And that is infectious. And suddenly everyone will be starting to, more and more people will start to behave in the same way. And then the whole expedition becomes, takes on a whole new level of fun and reward. Thank you so much for that, Pen. It's been an incredibly insightful, insightful uh, 45 minutes for me. And I'm sure the explorers are going to get a lot out of this. So I'll make sure they can uh, all enjoy it before, well, they, before they head off.